This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinton. Well, Margaret, there's a new sheriff in town. A new sheriff. <laughs> That's right. Longtime Microsoft executive Kurt DeBenny has been tapped by the White House to take over from Jeff Zients, who took command of the fledging healthcare.gov back in the fall. DeBenny helped take Microsoft from that desktop application to online services. There are some complex issues still being worked out. Well, I think that Jeff Zients really did an amazing job in what was a remarkably narrow time frame, allowing millions to access the site and sign up for coverage within a few weeks of taking the reins. But I think the White House is right on this one, Mark, a highly respected tech guru and innovator, probably just what the situation needs long term to fully resolve all the issues and get that credibility back into the organization. Our good friend, Chief Technology Officer Todd Park, says Delbaney is an expert in triage. He loves complex problems to solve, and he fast. He'll be targeting a few important issues, upping the capacity of the website, improving security, and fixing the back end of the system with insurers. Well, one thing that was clear, Mark, is that the White House had to move beyond the beltway in looking to bring in the best uh, to join the team and to lead it. I think they learned the hard way that a tech-savvy consumer expects websites to function well, and really this was important stuff. But we have to remind ourselves we're still in those early days, and problems once identified are being fixed. And once all these millions of American health consumers navigate their way through the insurance systems, many will be seeking a home for their health care, and that begs the question, how do consumers know which practices are quality practices? Margaret O'Kane is the founder and president of the National Committee for Quality Assurance, which is dedicated to improving health care quality across the spectrum in health plans, medical practices, and patient-centered specialties. NCQA is one of the leading organizations helping to accredit practices which adhere to the highest quality standards. Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, stops by looking into another misstatement about health policy spoken in the public domain, but no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love hearing from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Margaret O'Kane in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The numbers are racking up in states where insurance exchanges have been running smoothly and there has been a push to educate consumers about the health insurance exchanges. There are significant numbers to report. In New York State, close to 700,000 residents there have completed online applications and more than 300,000 residents are signed up for full insurance coverage. And in Washington state, they're cheering not just the Super Bowl win. The state rivals Vermont for the percentage of eligible population signing up for coverage through the state's exchange. Better than 33 percent at last check. Washington Health Plan Finder Executive Richard Onizuka listed some of the reasons why, in spite of early missteps, which most exchanges experienced, the state system was quite adaptable. When the exchange opened October 1st in Washington, no one could log on. It would have been a disaster, he said, but instead they made an executive decision to take the whole site down, fix the problems, then reboot when they knew they could handle the volume. They also learned the call center operators had a learning curve to adapt to as well. They added more personnel and continued updated training. They also chose to limit the scope of what the exchange site could do and decided they'd add more bells and whistles as the system could handle more complexity.
complexity. He says other exchanges could benefit from their own experience. Meanwhile, HHS Secretary Kathleen Sebelius is reaching out to states like Missouri and Kansas to do the moral and fiscally responsible thing and expand Medicaid to folks living at 138 percent of poverty in those states. The move would gain coverage for hundreds of thousands of the mostly working poor. And smoking and kids, it's where the two often meet. And once hooked, it's a struggle to quit. The FDA is launching a campaign targeting the group that could be prevented from picking up the habit in the first place with an approach that might get through to a teenager. Namely, long before smoking kills you, it makes you prematurely ugly. The ad shows effects of smoking causing wrinkly skin, yellow teeth, not to mention the out-of-pocket cost to the average smoker. While teen smoking is down overall, there are an estimated 10 million at-risk teens deemed most likely to pick up the habit. The $110 million campaign launched last week. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Margaret O'Kane, president and founder of the National Committee for Quality Assurance, a not-for-profit organization aimed at improving healthcare quality in health plans, medical practices, and patient-centered specialty practices. Ms. O'Kane has served as the co-chair of the National Priorities Partnership and is a board member of the Foundation for Informed Decision-Making and the American Board of Medical Specialties. She was elected a member of the Institute of Medicine in 1999 and received the 2000 2009 Picker Institute Individual Award for Excellence in the Advancement of Patient-Centered Care. She was named three times as one of the top 25 women in healthcare by Modern Healthcare. Margaret, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Happy to be here. Yeah, you launched the uh, National Committee for Quality Assurance back in 1990 with the goal of improving healthcare quality through measurement, transparency, and accountability. And at that time, there was very little infrastructure in place for monitoring health systems. So I assume you had to start from the ground up to create that infrastructure. Tell our listeners what the genesis of NCQA was and how did you go from that setting standards that you deem necessary to ensure a practice or hospitals meeting the criteria for excellence and tell us about the many evaluative systems you've put in place. When I started, I you know, I had worked for five years as a respiratory therapist in a hospital and I think that's where I really was, uh, let's just say I was impressed with how many opportunities to improve the quality of health care there were. Right. And so I went back to graduate school, and it was very interesting to me that what we had in terms of quality infrastructure at the time was kind of an inspection model. So um, doctors reading each other's charts, people walking around looking for bad things, but really not much in terms of an affirmative idea of what's supposed to be happening. So I think there were the ingredients for that in practice guidelines that had been developed for preventive services and for some chronic diseases. And, um, you know, these are diseases that are so common that they touch millions of Americans. And the opportunity to get the care better and get the health of those people better was kind of just sitting there waiting to happen. I think at the time when we started to talk about quality and trying to get something going that wasn't a research project, um, we were fortunate that Fortune 500 companies were doing their own quality improvement. And uh, part of it was really trying to figure out what are we trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm. How do we know if we're doing it? And then how do, what do we need to do to make it better? 
And so they had been doing it in corporate America, and they were surprised when they went to talk to health plans that they would say, well, how are you doing taking care of your people with diabetes? And the uh, plans would say, we're doing great. And they'd say, well, how many do you have? And they'd say, well, we don't know. Um, so, you know, it just became very clear that there was a lot of confusion and a lot of assumption that things were going well when nobody actually had any information. Mm -hmm. Well, it's so interesting to look into the science of uh, healthcare quality measurement, and certainly many practices and institutions are just now really struggling to come up to speed with that because most providers, most systems didn't get that training as part of their academic preparation. Right. But mm -hmm. at the National Committee on Quality Assurance, you developed the tools that helped practices get on board with their own quality improvement assessments. Tell us about some of those tools that you developed to utilize when conducting your accreditations and certifications and how you sort of realized that you needed to give people the tools to look at their own practices in an effective way. And of course, some of this really predates our electronic health record systems, which made it a huge challenge. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, the work we were doing was long before most organizations had electronic health records. And, you know, organizations had quality improvement to varying degrees. And a typical one was how many of our kids got their shots on time. Well, it turns out that if you're not really specific about how you count, like which shots are we talking about and what's the, what's the appropriate time frame, you have to kind of get very specific in order to have measures that you can compare one organization to another. And that, that's one of the, the very key points about quality. If you can't benchmark, then you're really not sure what good is. So when we developed the health uh, care effectiveness data and information set, that allowed people to compare how am I doing compared to others. You know, the Affordable Care Act is laying the foundation for applying incentives for improving such things as accountability and transparency in healthcare. And those are two issues that NCQA is very interested in. And now we're seeing the growth of patient centered medical homes and accountable care organizations, which, of course, are relying uh, heavily on sharing data to improve outcomes. NCQA has been an early supporter of those models, potential to improve uh, outcomes. Uh, how are these new shared risk models changing quality improvement landscapes? Well, when I think about how, how do you go about improving quality, one of the really, really important keys is to make it clear to everybody what their job is and where their responsibility uh, extends to. So with a patient-centered medical home, um, it's a bunch of criteria of how a primary care practice needs to be organized to systematically look at the people that it takes care of or its panel of patients and um, make sure that the care they're getting is coordinated. You know, so typically um, people will be seeing more than one doctor. And if each doctor is operating in a vacuum or in a bubble, uh, you know, even if they're all doing what seems to be right from their own lights, that doesn't come together in a way that um, is coherent around every patient. So it's, a co it's coordination of care. It's actually access. I mean, we know that often people don't go to the doctor because it's hard to get there. So um, one of our sets of standards is around appointment access, and, um, and there also has to be 24-7 access to clinical advice. Um, Team-based care, you know, it's not that the doctor doesn't have to do everything. So if the practice is following me and I have diabetes and my numbers are really not very good and I'm at risk for 
all the terrible complications of diabetes. That can be broken up into nurses can take care of that, health coaches can help with that. So team-based care is another really important feature, but everybody has to be really clear about what their job is. Figuring out who are my my high-risk people and what am I going to do to try to keep them as healthy as possible and help empower them to take care of themselves. I mean, the old model was you would come in for whatever reason, you know, you sprained your ankle, so you go to the doctor, and at that point, they might look at your other numbers and see if you're up to date on your tests and so on, if you're lucky. But this is a much more proactive way of managing the panel of patients. It's the way things really ought to happen, and Mm -hmm. it's the way that you can be sure that everybody gets the care that they need and not more of the care than they need. You know, we also look for the practices to be looking at their own quality, doing the kind of studies we talked about. They can be part of a collaborative or they can do it on their own, but there are, you know, when you look at our standards, which are very detailed, There are many places to look for opportunities to improve, or how am I doing? Well, Margaret, it struck me when when NCQA first released the patient-centered medical home standards and in your subsequent revisions that in many ways you were laying out standards which uh, for most American primary care practices perhaps were more aspirational at the time, uh, where team-based care and some of those closing the loops on referrals, coordinated care were not yet uh, the standard of practice. And of course, we've seen so much progress over these couple of years. But now the NCQA has a new group around the standard setting, and I understand that uh, NCQA is one of only two organizations permitted by federal law to accredit plans in the new health insurance exchanges under the Affordable Care Act. Your role specifically is in accrediting the insurance plans that are being offered within the online marketplace. Maybe you can share with our listeners what kind of quality measures are you asked to focus on in accrediting those insurance plans that consumers, many of whom are getting insurance for the very first time now or for the first time in many years, are going to be purchasing? So our health plan accreditation was actually how we got started in quality. So we've been accrediting health plans since about 1993. So the the exchange plans are just a new version of the health plans that we're accrediting. So we've, you know, we started out, the demand was from the private purchaser who said, if you want me to offer you to my employees, you have to be accredited by NCQA. Uh, then I think we went to, to Medicare and we said, look what we've done here. And don't you think it's really important to have some better quality information about Medicare? And they then contracted with us to collect data about Medicare health plans. And also, they recognize our accreditation program. That's part of the beauty of what we do. You know, it's a consistent set of expectations that different payers can really rally around. And, you know, so all of our committees and our board have multiple stakeholders. And, you know, when you get to a common definition of this is what quality looks like, then you can send a really coherent message to the plans about what they need to be doing. And we also went to states, and we're recognized in 38 states now. So, by the way, performance measurement is a part of that accreditation. So these HEDIS measures, which are looking at how am I doing with my preventive services, with getting those out to people that need them? How am I doing with people that have chronic diseases in my population? Am I meeting standards of care? And then we also have another important element is there's a survey and the the patients are asked, what's it like to be a member of this plan? Do you get access to care when you need it? How is it working with the doctors that are available and so forth? So it's a very, very comprehensive look 
And now the newest iteration is with the exchanges, but that's not really new for us. We're speaking today with Margaret O'Kane, president of the National Committee for Quality Assurance, a not-for-profit organization aimed at establishing better quality in health plans, medical Mm -hmm. practices, and patient-centered specialty practices. Ms. O'Kane is a board member at the Foundation for Informed Decision-Making and was elected a member of the Institute of Medicine in 1999. Margaret, I wanted to sort of pull the thread on that concept of quality, what what it looks like, and you've been sort of talking about models of care and this shift in healthcare, really looking at team-based care, all based on evidence-based data out there. And you've cited some organizations that seem to have really gotten around to the sort of right model and two that we know well, the Denver Health System in Colorado and Griffin Hospital in Connecticut. Tell us why these organizations stand out and any others who might come out to mind as well. Well, I'm thinking about the Community Health Center, Inc. in Connecticut, which is a level three patient center medical <laughs> home. That's a, you know, that's one of 6,762 patient center medical homes that we've recognized nationwide. And we've recognized 34,000 of the practitioners in those organizations. So, you know, there are many, many organizations that have kind of signed on for this because I think that there is an understanding that if you organize systematically and you measure systematically, you're going to get better quality than if, if you're just kind of unclear about what you're trying to achieve. And it's really important to get all these different parties that want to know that they're working with quality organizations on the same page. So that way you can get some real clarity if you're a community health center or a primary care practice that the things that I'm working on are are important things. And another area that we have been watching very carefully and are curious about your insights into is that of telemedicine or, or telehealth, as we tend to call it. Now over 200 telemedicine, telehealth networks across the country being utilized by over 3,000 hospitals and care centers and in wildly different ways. And I know you've said that quality telemedicine and mobile health initiatives are going to be a big part of improving coordinated patient-centered care and helping to bridge some of the divide between providers and patients and the reality of geography and time. Tell us, uh, from your perspective, the essential role that telemedicine is going to play in the patient-centered medical home going forward, and how will you factor that into your standards? What's the work you're doing in that area? I think that the possibilities of telehealth are really extraordinary. I mean, one application is, you know, if I'm out in the in the country and I can't get to a specialist and I have some very serious disease that requires specialty care, I just heard about a project in New Mexico where the university clinic is supporting primary care practices all over the state, many of them led by nurse practitioners or PAs, physician assistants, and um, they're tracking their outcomes. They're, you know, they work with a model where they're kind of co-treating with these specialists. They're using, it's not the specialist kind of flying in and saying, here's what you need to do. They're actually working with the team on the ground and doing it through teleconferencing and so forth mm-hmm. and um, tracking outcomes. And their cure rate for hepatitis C is something like 45%, which is really extraordinary. It's as good as the university's own cure rate Mm -hmm. for its central operation in Albuquerque. So it extends the reach of our current delivery system out to more remote areas. So that's number one. I think if you think about the patient that's homebound and so forth, uh, it also offers the opportunity to allow patients to be in their home, to be monitored by the system, 
to get all kinds of care that they need without having to uh, come in or drive for hours to get there. So health in the home, I think, is going to be a great new model that we're going to have. That, again, it extends the current capabilities of the delivery system into places that we haven't thought of as sites of care, but really that can be. And I think we'll always want to know, um, is it clear who's responsible for what? So we would have kind of structural standards. Mm -hmm. And then what are the outcomes that they're getting? And what is the patient's experience with this? Mm -hmm. So the logic that we have for all our, our programs is pretty much similar. It's being really clear about how it needs to be organized and then having the patients tell us How's it going? Margaret, I want to give a shout-out to Sanjeev Arora, who runs that program. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, we've worked with Sanjeev. We actually have modeled that up and are training folks uh, around the country as well. And He's uh, a terrific visionary. He's a great visionary. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've been thinking about this in the context of trying to increase patient experience. And But I want to talk a little bit about a provision in the Affordable Care Act that will uh, compile customer responses to the online insurance marketplaces, and Mm -hmm. that data will start to be available in 2015, and NCQA has launched a new program of distinction in patient experience reporting in which patients report on their own care experience. Tell us about this vital aspect of quality measurement in healthcare as uh, the consumer is encouraged to share their feedback. This is one of the new frontiers of healthcare. I mean, I think those of us that work in healthcare usually go in with wonderful motivation, and we really go in to try to help people. But often we kind of fall into patterns of behavior that are not necessarily what the patient would have designed if they had had the opportunity. So getting this feedback from patients, whether it's at the practice level, which is what our patient distinction, patient experience, um, that's the level for that, or whether it's at the health plan level, or whether it's about the exchange, the experience of shopping on the exchange, Um, It's really important for us to constantly hear from people about what worked, what didn't work, what could be better, and so forth. So um, I think that there's been all too much internal debate in healthcare about whether that is quality or not. But um, in many industries, um, it's just whatever the customer wants is quality. So, you know, getting that voice and getting that feedback of what it's like to be a patient in whatever the system is, is absolutely a pillar of, of our work and of everybody else's work and quality, I think. Well, Margaret, I really appreciate your organization's directive, which sounds pretty simple, but we know it's very complex, and that is to measure, analyze, improve, repeat. Measure, yeah. analyze, improve, repeat. And you've applied this method across so many platforms in healthcare and have been doing this for a couple of decades. Perhaps you can share with us uh, maybe a a significant success story where applying these ideas has had a dramatic impact on quality improvement. Well, I mean, I think about the organizations that we recognize. And, you know, um, you said before that when we put out our patient-centered medical home standards, uh, it was like some people thought we had landed from Mars because <laughs> these were so hard, and they right. said, really, you expect us to do this? Right. And yet um, we have practices out there that have so far exceeded yeah. our expectations and who are now telling us this is what you ought to be thinking about mm-hmm. for the next iteration. Mm-hmm. So we see practices absolutely transformed. One of the one of the points that I didn't address that you asked about was uh, changing the payment system. One of the things I think people don't realize is that if you pay people fee-for-service, they they really only get paid for doing the things that the fee-for-service covers, and it really 
kind of constrains them to do things that you might need, like transportation uh, for people in community health centers, that really are not billable. Um, so by offering patient-centered medical homes a care management fee, uh, payers have really freed them up to kind of meet the patient where the patient's needs are. And they've just really, uh, they, they continue to astound us in terms of their level of aspiration and what they do for their, their patients. It's, it's fantastic. We've been speaking today with Margaret O'Kane, president of the National Committee for Quality Assurance, a not-for-profit organization aimed at improving health care through measurement, transparency, and accountability. You can learn more about their work by going to ncqa.org. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on My Healthcare. pleasure. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, President Obama recently gave his State of the Union address, and he made one false statement about the Affordable Care Act. The president boasted that because of the Affordable Care Act, more than 9 million Americans have signed up for private health insurance or Medicaid coverage. But that total includes Medicaid renewals, not just new enrollees who signed up because of the law. Here are the components of that 9 million figure. 3 million Americans who have chosen insurance plans on the federal or state marketplaces, an estimated 3.1 million young adults under age 26 who joined their parents' plans because of the law's requirements, and 6.3 million who were determined eligible for Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program from October through December. But the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services said when announcing that number that it included new eligibility under expanded coverage, eligibility under prior law, and, quote, in some states, Medicaid renewals and groups not affected by the health care law. So not everyone was a new enrollee who gained Medicaid coverage because of the expansion of Medicaid or even because they were previously eligible but encouraged to sign up because of the ACA. Some unknown number of those 6.3 million are renewing their already existing coverage. Obama overstated the law's impact. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Walking. Sounds simple, but it's tricky business when you've lost a limb. And with the proliferation of IED explosions in our recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we've seen the devastating effects of these injuries too frequently. But all of these amputees have spurred a new rush in science to build a better prosthetic. Traditional artificial feet and limbs do a pretty good job of getting amputees on their feet again, but they have limitations, and on average, amputees take a fall at least once a year because of a lack of proficiency of the artificial limb to function naturally. Scientists at Michigan Tech have developed a computerized bionic limb that pivots and rotates just like a natural ankle would, allowing for better balance while in motion. 
what we actually made is that the ankle has it can move more than just toe up and uh, toe down it allows the foot to roll uh, side to side it allows the wearer to turn more naturally it is important because the only time that people walk in a straight path is when they are on a treadmill. Professor Mo Rostgar, lead developer on the team, says that what really makes all the difference here is that their bionic limb has computer sensors on the bottom of the foot that alerts the limb to potential changes in gait. When we walk, the ankle adapts to different terrain. For example, if there is a pebble and you walk on top of it, the ankle rolls, right? So if you have the same kind of mechanism in the prosthesis in the ankle that we have, uh, eventually it allows better stability for the amputees. It prevents them from falling often. He teamed up with researchers at the Mayo Clinic who are helping to refine the prosthesis and test its reliability. They're working with amputees from the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts because there are so many varying degrees of injury to test the limb's adaptability. It has cables, so it allows us to move the electrical motors that are in the device to virtually anywhere that we want. Uh, This is a good flexibility because it prevents uh, focusing all the weights in the the area of the lost limb. You can put these DC motors or these electrical motors where the socket is or maybe you, you can move them to the waist area. So uh, there is a good flexibility in um, distributing the weight of the device. That's a feature that uh, I hope that someone help amputees in order to uh, increase their mobility. A bionic artificial limb that uses advanced microprocessors to facilitate more natural walking for amputees, improving their safety as well as their dignity and quality of life. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.